Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Valerie Bowling. I'm pleased to share a case study from the 2019 Chief Medical Officer Summit about the role of the CMO in the transition before and after an IPO featuring Dr. Tail Zacks, CMO at Moderna Therapeutics. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Enjoy the podcast. So Zane Kassam, Finch Therapeutics, you'll hear more from me tomorrow, but I'm really excited to introduce uh, Dr. Tal Zaks from Moderna Therapeutics. As we know, Moderna's done some wonderful work with mRNA therapeutics and excited to hear about pre and post IPO. This is a tough act to follow, so I'm not even gonna try. <laughs> uh, in fact, I'm not even gonna get on the stage. Um, I was asked to put this talk together, and so in, in putting it together, uh, I'm, I'm gonna do two things. First, uh, most of the talk is fluff, and there's only two, talk, two, two slides that had to get legal approval, so that gives you a preview. Uh, and the second, I try to think, what is it that you guys actually wanna hear that you will find useful to you? Uh, and so I'm gonna give you sort of my framing, if you will. I, I was asked to give a case study. The first thing you learn in medical school is you, you never ever wanna be a case study. Um, so despite that better judgment, uh, here we go. Uh, I'm going to start with the forward-looking statement because when you go into being a, a public company, that is slide number two in every deck that you give. Uh, what this slide means, it, it's actually a modern interpretation of a very ancient Jewish tradition uh, or saying that says that at the time that, that the first uh, temple was lost, prophecy has been given to fools. And so to the degree that this is prophetic, I'm a fool, and anybody who listens and believes in the prophecy, uh, be warned. Um, so, so this is the agenda, uh, as has been put, and uh, you know, what does it mean to expand the role? How do you manage growth? What is the role that we have in, in articulating the data, uh, business development opportunity, and some personal implications? So I'm going to cut to the chase and start by just giving you the answers so that you have more time to networking if you want to. Uh, so here are the answers. Um, the changes from my perspective have been really two-thirds in communication how you actually communicate, who you communicate to, how you tell the story. And I'll, I'll give you a little bit more of a flavor about that. I think about a third of it, just on the part of going public, has to do with operations. Uh, and I'll give you a sense of, of what that sort of meant to me uh, in the unique context of Moderna, which I think from an operational perspective has, been, uh, has its own unique challenges. Uh, and then if you're lucky, you have really no implications for strategy because at the end of the day, going public is just another financing event uh, to execute on the strategy that you have. Um, managing growth, so this is really for a CMO for development, it's about operations, it's how you uh, build a team. And here, um, there are a lot of things that you can reinvent, uh, and I think the previous talk uh, was phenomenal in, in how much actually was reinvented. We're across three different therapeutic areas spanning anything from infectious disease vaccines to healthy volunteers to rare diseases and babies to uh, cancer and, and, and older people. So uh, there's a lot of cogs that have been pre-invented and it's impossible to reinvent everything. But there are some unique things that have to do with how we operate that I think are, are worth reflecting because in you know, when you have a biotech and a new technology and a new everything, the CEO expects you obviously to reinvent development. Uh, and that leads to some interesting discussions because at the end of the day in development, really, we, we, there's a lot of it that we don't control. Uh, what role does the CMO have in articulating data? You're right. Uh, in terms of clinical data, that really becomes one of the major focuses. And when we'll talk about communications, it's a lot about how you communicate the clinical data and what data can you speak about and when. And I'll, I'll 
sort of give you examples, but this is where being public actually makes the biggest difference. Um, you suddenly go from an environment of talking to your investors who have seen the story, who have put their money, most of them are specialists, they understand what you're talking, the way in which you talk to them, it becomes very different than the way in which you interact in the public arena where every investor has to know everything that is material at the same time and the range of understanding is everywhere from Joe Public to uh, really, really deep analysts. Um, and because of that, you're expected to describe what is material right? and you kind of don't have to talk about what's not material. Well, how, you how do you determine materiality? Uh, materiality is actually determined, it, it is not uh, legislated, it is actually litigated. So it's a post-fact finding, somebody's going to sue you because they say it was not material. Well, what is material? Something a reasonable investor would want to know. Well, you know, we all drink our Kool-Aid, a reasonable investor by definition is somebody who buys my stock. And an unreasonable one is one who sells it. Uh, <laughs> therein lies the problem. What role does the CMO have in business development opportunity? I can tell you from Moderna's perspective, I'm actually not it. Uh, and so I'm very fortunate because the chief financial officer has to, happens to be an MD, Lawrence Kim. The president of R&D, uh, Stephen Hogue, is also a physician. And so uh, in terms of BD, I've mainly played a supportive character, I'd say, with the exception of one big deal that we did back uh, about a year after we joined, which was to do a personalized cancer vaccine. That was a $200 million investment that Merck came in and, and, and joined with us. It was something that was just uh, close to my heart. And having seen BD done both from the pharma side and from now the biotech side, um, the only conclusion I've come to is make sure that your buyer is a development person, not a research person. Uh, and developers are hungry to put the molecule into the clinic and you, if you get traction there, you're going to get movement. Research collaborations tend to have a very different dynamic and take, tend to take longer. So when I look at BD, my first question isn't, maybe that's my parochial sense, but who's the, who's the buyer and, and is it a development person who actually wants to go test it in the clinic? Uh, what are the personal implications of being a CMO in a public traded company? Uh, the answer is I love New York. Uh, a lot of investors there. Uh, my wife discovered she's an artist and we have a little place in Brooklyn, so that works out great. Uh, everybody's going to have their own personal take here, so I, I don't really think there's much here I can share, except that if I step back and look at my calendar, what I'm spending my time on has actually changed uh, quite significantly. And I think any of you who make that transition will realize that both at the executive team level and in terms of what sucks up your hours of the day, it's a big change. And so you have to be ready for it. In a sense, you have to decide whether you're, you're going to like it for the long run or not. Uh, okay, so um, stepping back, I'm going to frame the rest of the talk really around, around three areas because if, if I think about my life as a CMO, I, I sort of put it in three different buckets. What is the strategy? Uh, how do I decide what I'm doing? Uh, what are the operational implications? And then let's talk a little bit about that, that, that piece of communication, which has uh, really become the most important one for me. So strategy. Um, I think it's important to frame it because this really drives everything else that you do. And for Moderna, this has been uh, an interesting one for me. So I'm going to spend uh, 
this is my one of the two corporate slides. I'm going to give you a flavor of what our strategy is because I think to understand my case study, you have to get a little bit of a context of Moderna. So I'm not going to go into the science. Suffice to say that we're trying to make messenger RNA medicines and vaccines. So we package mRNA, we try to get it to a certain tissue, we, get, we want to get protein expressed. And if we can do that, we can do that safely. If we can get the protein expressed, if the protein's functional, we've uncovered a whole modality and a way of doing things that has never been done before. That for me, when I joined four years ago, was the real allure of it. And, and you know, on a personal level, it was kind of fun to go from being a medical oncologist who's developing oncology drugs to somebody, and, and I developed the, the least sexy drugs in the history of mankind. Uh, I didn't care how sexy the drug was. I care that it worked for patients. And I've got the proof points. I was with Cephalon. We had arsenic trioxide as a drug. And our second drug, the innovative one, was phenamustin, an alkylating agent that was developed in the 1950s as, as warfare. Uh, so here I come into a company that's actually thinking about things very orthogonal. And the way I think about it is making mRNA medicines and vaccines that allows you to actually express protein for the first time has many different applications, and you can actually parse them out. Now, for the first time, you can think about your medicine along a technology risk axis and a biology risk axis. So technology risk really means how much protein can I express and which tissue do I want to get into? And the biology risk is what's the likelihood of that target to actually connect to a meaningful endpoint physiologically? So we start with a flu vaccine, because that's the easiest, right? We all understand what the antigen are. We know how to measure it. And by the way, from a technology perspective, you need a smidgen of protein. The immune system will do the rest. So it's the least technology risk. It's the least biology risk. That's why we started. And as soon as we saw activity th there, we said, aha, let's go make more vaccines. Uh, and we started to go after more complicated vaccines. Um, fast forward in the last three years, we've put seven different vaccines into the clinic, into phase ones. Uh, five in the second year of actually doing this. Uh, and of those seven, we have data in six, and of those six, five actually work. We've got immunogenicity that uh, is as good or better than anything else that people have done for those uh, antigens. And we've got a safety profile now in close to 1,000 healthy volunteers that's uh, similar to any other marketed adjuvanted vaccine. But then you start to pull and say, okay, what additional things we can do? Uh, we can do cancer vaccines. Uh, so on a technology axis, that's, that's pretty low risk because we already know the vaccines works. But from a biology risk, boy, no cancer vaccine has ever worked. Uh, so let's go do that. Uh, you can actually get paracrine effects. So if you inject mRNA locally in a tissue, you get local protein production. And that leads you to do intratumor things, trying to wake up the immune system by injecting mRNA into a tumor. You can go in and, and inject VEGF into people's hearts to try and improve revascularization after myocardial infarct. Sounds science fiction, except AstraZeneca is already in phase two doing that. They're our partner on this program. We showed in a phase one that you can actually do this safely. You get protein locally produced. They're now actually injecting people's hearts after an MI, looking to see revascularization. It's based on pretty good preclinical data in the relevant models. And then you get into uh, systemically. Boy, what if you could give mRNA packaged in a way IV that would go to the liver, and now instead of making protein ex vivo in 10,000 liter bioreactors, you put them in the human body, and the human body is making its own protein. And so we started with the simplest biology risk, which is let's take an infectious, uh, an anti-infectious antibody. So we took an antibody against chikungunya virus from somebody who was infected, uh, modified it to have a, a long half-life, and went and put it in animals, saw a great dose response curve, good safety profile. We're actually in healthy volunteers today dosing people, healthy people, trying to give them the information to make an mRNA, uh, uh, and a monoclonal antibody inside their body. Uh, and of course, that opens the door to systemics, to uh, enzyme replacement therapies, to go in after intracellular uh, genetic losses uh, that you can't do with recombinant technology. 
So that gives you a sense of the trajectory of the company and, and how we think about strategy. It was this bold idea of putting a new class of medicines that actually allowed us to fundraise uh, and, and build a team that, that wanted to join in this mission. Uh, now, the challenge, of course, is what I just told you in 30 seconds is, of course, just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, you go into an investor meeting where typically you have an hour. How do you get them comfortable with this level of complexity, right? Uh, I just went through uh, four years of de-risking, showed you six different modalities of medicine uh, covering four therapeutic areas. Some of them are combination mRNAs that have their own things. Uh, we're talking about 20 programs today that we have in development, 10 of which are already dosing in the clinic. Uh, we've gone through G series of financing, every one of those, you had to kind of tell the story again. Uh, and we've executed very rapidly into the clinic. So the strategy and executing on the strategy actually in our case has led to a super complicated story to try and tell and distill. And the more we execute and the broader we go, the more complicated that becomes. And investors, sophisticated ones who will spend enough time with you, will either believe you or not believe you, that's fine. Uh, at the end of the day, half the people buy your stock and half the people sell your stock. Um, but packaging it in a way that's actually understood to a broad audience becomes a real big challenge. Um, so that's strategy. Let's talk about then operations. So this is my take on it. Coming from pharma, what I realized is, boy, I had it good. I had regulatory, I had operations, I had legal people writing contracts, I had statisticians, I had data managers, and I can go on and on and on and on. And I would just sit there at the protocol review committee as a connoisseur of a good meal, and, 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 and you know, when you're in a French company, this was Sanofi, of course, a bottle of good red wine, and we'd talk about the protocols, right? Uh, it turns out that uh, when you're in biotech, you actually have to uh, cook. And you have to go and buy the ingredients. Uh, and that was a bit of a jarring transition for me. And it made me really think, OK, how the heck am I going to pull this off? And, and so I went around and asked, well, well, how have others solved this problem? Uh, and that's where I'm going to talk a little bit about the model of building your team and how you think about the operations of being a chief medical officer. Because at the end of the day, a chief medical officer in a biotech is it for everything in development. A chief medical officer in, in a large established pharma is, is probably just the figurehead for regulatory. Uh, and, and so in that transition, right, there's a lot of, of, of things that you actually have to accomplish. And then, of course, let's talk about what changes by going public. So this is what an early company operational model looks like in my book. It's, I call it the spiderweb model. You're a CMO, you've got one thing going to an IND, you need fractional resources from you know, seven different domains, and so you go and find your consultants or your part-time people, you start to hire a team, and every time you need something, you go and, and, and you eat that piece of the web and you come back. Um, and that works if you got one drug, maybe two. It doesn't work if you're trying to put five phase ones all in the same time within six months. Uh, so I had to conceptually think about the operational model here in a very different manner. Now, at the speed at which we were going, I didn't even have time to build a team. Right? We've got one hiring season in the year, maybe two if we're lucky, let's face it. Now is the time we all poach from each other. Uh, in September, those who figured it wrong, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll come back, and that's about it. But when you're executing across this speed, uh, how do you overcome that? So, so I actually had to step back and come up with a very different model. And so um, when you're in 
phase one, you know, with one to three phase ones, what you typically do is you try to form a partnership with some CRO. If you have the time to grow and you've got a single molecule, you start to build a team and you have time to build a team, then you start to, you really don't want to pay a lot externally. Um, but if you're doing a whole lot of things in parallel, then you really want a different relationship with your CRO. Now the problem with this is that one of us is an ant and the other is an elephant. Those relationships can go sour real quick. Uh, however, it turns out these days that elephants, you know, half their food is actually ants. Uh, biotechs make up about half the business of CROs these days uh, because of the way the funding environment has changed. And CROs have gotten a lot smarter uh, in terms of how to work with us when we've started. And so I had the good fortune of, of forging a terrific relationship when we just got started with a big CRO. We've since then uh, expanded it to a second big CROs. But in order to actually accomplish that velocity, I had to find a different model. And, and so we were able to execute about five different phase ones with initially only three people total in development in my team. In fact, we got to a point of 20 development candidates uh, and 10 now in the clinic with a total of something between 20 and 40 people in development, all inclusive. And I'm talking clinical operations, regulatory affairs, data management, the whole thing. Uh, that's not sustainable. The, the flip side is a lot of it has been phase ones in healthy volunteers, so they're relatively easier. As we get into therapeutics, as we get into later stage, as a lot of our programs are moving into phase two, I'm now in a very different part of the curve where I'm actually ramping up development. So my team has doubled last year, it's probably gonna double again this year, and it will need to continue to grow, and a lot of it is sort of catching up to what late phase development is. So we had to kind of step back in at each phase of the life of my journey in the past four years of trying to build this from an operational perspective, really think hard about what's your time frame, what are you trying to achieve, and what's the operational model by which you think you're gonna be able to achieve it. Um, where we are today, I would say, is uh, we're just starting, uh, you know, we launched a big program uh, for late phase development. Uh, it was an interesting realization for me last year. Uh, as we were, you know, program number nine or ten heading into the clinic, and I went to, to the executive committee and, and uh, with my head of clinops, and we said, look, I need three more people, and they, you know, typical EC, well, you need three, okay, what could you do with two? Why don't you need four? And, and guys, I don't have time for this. So, uh, so, 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 so I went back and, and, and thought a lot about it a lot and, and asked some people for advice, and then two months later, I went back into the executive committee and said, guys, um, I, I miscalibrated, I don't need three people. No, no, I need 80. <laughs> Between now and the, and, and, and the next 18 months, that's realistically what I need, and here's why. And the funny thing happened, everybody breathed a sigh of relief. Because they realized that this wasn't scalable the way we were operating, but it wasn't clear how were you going to actually do that. So we launched a project, we got some external consultants, and we figured out what our build model is for the next phase. And it's just the next phase of getting into a whole bunch of rare diseases that are global and, and that uh, have a very different operational way of doing it. Um, there is a unique challenge for my company uh, that I don't think anybody has solved in the past, which is the velocity and the spread. We're a company that has three different therapeutic areas uh, within a few years of its existence along so many different programs, and all of our projects yet are connected in ways that in large pharma they're not, because we all use the same platform. So if, some, if a chemist finds something that, that has to do with stability or how the drug is shipped on one product, 
program, it's got a domino effect all the way on the rest. If somebody has a safety signal on a vaccine over here, it's going to have a domino effect on the rest. So how you build the teams and how you think about communication has to be different than the way we've all grown where, you know, it's a project team, but the project team on the right doesn't really care what happens on the project team on the left. They're only shared resources at the end of the day. There's a little bit of people and money. For us, it's much deeper than that because of the fact that we're a platform company. Um, the last piece in terms of operations uh, is the, the notion of being public and how you deal with clinical data. And this is where we really had to change how we do things. So the first process that we, we actually had to go spend some time figuring out how we're going to do is who's going to see data? How is data going to emerge from the CRO through the Excel spreadsheet, God forbid, to a graph that some researcher puts up to a corporate deck that that's not going to work. So we had to put in much more robust processes. Now, the thing about robust processes, they take time. The thing that every CEO hates is anything that takes time between him and the data. So you got to manage that, and that's not easy. The other piece that isn't easy is that not everybody can see the data. I mean, in the good old days, right, you'd see the first piece of data, you'd get a town hall, and you'd show the employees, here's what it is. Well. That first piece of data for us today is something that we're not willing to share with the public. We've got 750 people, so of course we can't share it with them. And in fact, the, the, the stock is now traded, so you can't share it with anybody who's not gone through the whole rigmarole of disclosures, et cetera. So going from a company that is private and is used to data transparency to a public company that can't share data actually has some cultural implications. You have to think about it and how you communicate about data and what it is you can and can't say. And I have to say from a time perspective, these days, the executive committee is spending as much time on strategy as it is on data disclosure issues, uh, which we're in a fortunate position to have because we got so many programs and so many milestones that we're hitting, but it becomes a real problem of scaling. Uh, and just to exemplify sort of, uh, this is my last uh, and final sort of corporate deck. This is our pipeline as it is today. Uh, and, and this pipeline didn't exist four years ago. We dosed our first patient a little over, you know, three years ago in a quarter that was a healthy volunteer. Uh, and all the little squiggly lines in red are actually there because that's all that's new in terms of execution from the time we went public in December to our last earnings call, uh, or that should be our first earnings call that we had uh, last month. And by the way, that's a misnomer. We should all call these losings calls. Uh, let's talk about communications then. And there's enough time in my talk for, for uh, Q&A, so uh, please, uh, I, I look forward to actually uh, hearing what you guys care about. Um, I was a fellow in, uh, at, uh, at a major medical institution, and I won't forget this young lady who came in one day. Uh, and you know, as a fellow, you have this attending who's very erudite and, and, and knows the literature. And so we sit together. Uh, she was about a 35-year-old uh, woman with metastatic colorectal cancer, and she came in with her father. And the senior physician sits down and starts to explain to them, you know, you've got uh, this stage and this, this grade and this histology, and there's uh, four drugs approved and three experimental ones and seven different combinations, and here are the data that speak to this. And, and he gave her this uh, priceless uh, half-hour, uh, you know, really erudite conversation about what the options were in the state of the art in the field, and truly it was worthy of ASCO. And she, she and her father were kind of nodding along, and yeah, yeah, we get it, yeah, we get it, okay. And, and so he finishes up, any question? No, okay, we're gonna go make a treatment plan, yes, doctor. 
And, and he leaves the room, and I kind of hang around behind because, you know, as a fellow, you want to make sure that you, you, you then, somebody has to connect the dots, right? And the woman breaks down in tears and looks at me and says, Doctor, does this mean I have cancer? She hadn't gotten, you know, a single thing of that erudite half hour. And that's kind of stuck in my mind because I think the biggest challenge we have as physicians, which serves us well in this role, is our absolute need to modulate the message and what we need to communicate to different audiences. The best example I ever had was a, a, a physician in Philly, uh, Fred Beauvais, terrific cardiologist who was a, a Navy diver instructor. I mean, this guy was just the energizer runner. He'd go, 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 go. And we go into a room one morning, and there's a patient lying in bed with heart failure, and suddenly Dr. Beauvais slows down. And asks the patient in a very slow voice, how was the Eagles game yesterday? And I kind of look at him and say, you know, what happened? Is he having a stroke? Um, and you can see the patient warming up to him, and they're having a very slow, thoughtful conversation. And as soon as we were in the room, Dr. Beauvais, tuck, 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 he's back, he's back to himself. He did not have a stroke. He was actually talking to the patient in a way that the patient understood. And, and, and the ability to actually modulate what we say to whom we say, I think, becomes really the core tenant of thinking about what we communicate. And so, uh, for me, really, the CMO going public, that big transition, my biggest takeaway has been it is about thinking and spending the time about what you communicate, how you communicate, and to whom you communicate. Because your audiences are changing. You're going and talking to analysts. You're talking to very, very smart people who've read and listened and know every detail. And on the flip side, you're talking to people who have no clue, as we joke amongst ourselves. Uh, let's start with how do you spell mRNA? Um, and for a lot of people, that's where you have to start. And so how do you get from there to the value proposition of the complexity that I showed you two slides ago really becomes our biggest challenge as an executive team. Um, and so the, the other part that I am sort of finding challenging and interesting is how much do you lean forward, as, as the lingo goes, right? Because uh, the investors are looking at you. You are the person they trust to tell them what's what. Because you have that conflict of interest deep down in your heart between having to appease the business and having to appease your oath to tell the truth and do good for patients no matter what the outcome is. Uh, and, you know, everybody's got to calibrate it at a different place for themselves. Uh, the way I do it for myself is I try to spend some time thinking about it and I try to understand who's my audience and what they need. Uh, and you can lean forward a little bit more, a little bit less, I think, depending on the question and what that person's thesis is and what it is that they're trying to refute or trying to understand. I don't think there is a, a uh, I don't have a simple answer for this one, except to say that my answer is to recognize it as a challenge and try to think about it. Um, the last piece I would say about communication is, it is a team sport and how you interact with the executive team, primarily the CEO, the CFO, president of R&D, 
Uh, you know, when you go on the road, it, 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 it's kind of funny as, as you go public and, and you start talking to investors a lot. Um, the first thing that happens at the end of the first day is you cut away two thirds of the jokes. Those stop being funny very quickly. Um, and the second thing that happens is you can recite chapter and verse what everybody else is going to say at every given time, right? Uh, and so it becomes this melting pot in a way of distilling your story and communicating, which, which I found uh, really to be a fascinating exercise to go through and I think has helped us now that we're public uh, really cement our message. Uh, the, the challenge for us, I think, is going to be, you know, in the future with this magnitude of growth and data, how do we retain that at the executive team? And uh, it's taken a lot of time to make sure that we all understand and we're all aligned in terms of the understanding. So we have this piece of uh, now material data. We all agree is material. We need to go communicate about it. You have to spend some time actually aligning what are the key messages and how, how you think about that. It's not trivial. Um, uh, tailoring the story. Um, I think the best example I had here, I was very fortunate uh, a couple years ago to be invited to give a TEDx talk. Uh, for any of you who have done it, it's really remarkable if you haven't, uh, go read the book on TED, uh, the TED Talks. The guy who started it actually wrote a book on the process. And what I found fascinating is the process because you're asked in a TEDx talk to distill everything you know and can talk about to eight minutes. Uh, so I've already failed miserably because I'm going on, I don't know, 25 minutes here. But um, that process of distilling it is actually an iterative one that takes a lot of energy and takes a lot of putting it out there against different audiences and see, seeing what they react to and getting feedback, listening to the feedback, which is a hard thing to do, especially for physicians, but reacting to that and then modifying your message uh, and then tailoring it. So uh, the conclusion I took away from that is that the best way to do it is just to practice. And so when I got invited to give this talk, I said, hey, that's a great opportunity. What does it mean for me having gone through this? And I've got an opportunity to share it with you and in that way sort of distill it for myself. So thank you all for being part of the journey for me and uh, happy to take any questions. That was great. Really, really interesting journey. Um, just a quick question, because I know you guys have a lot of collaborations with other companies, and and you talked about the need, because you're a platform company, to be able to share those learnings across your different programs. How do you handle that from the perspective of um, the various alliances you have, and how does that information get back to you as they do studies with your platform? That's a good question. Uh, we have really tried to limit our collaborations to uh, very few uh, select partnerships. Uh, so we've got a very big one with AstraZeneca and a very big one with Merck. Uh, they span very different domains. And since we actually are the ones producing uh, the mRNA uh, and the know-how in IP is such that uh, if there's critical information to be shared, we can actually share it across the platform so that all of our partners benefit. But Consequently, if there's anything they find as part of their business that has implication for the platform, we retain the IP and we retain the rights to go share it broadly. So at the platform level, that's how we solved it. And of course, clinical data and program-specific data are going to be proprietary to everyone. It hasn't been, I think it was the wisdom of those who did the business development deals and how they thought about it from the early days to set it up that's allowed us this foundation to actually have it uh, synergize without competing. 
Thank you, guys. I hope you enjoyed the podcast from the 2019 Chief Medical Officer Summit. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Thanks, everyone.